Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. Welcome back to Beautiful Humans. This is Denisha. Hey, everybody. This is Erin. So we have decided to spend today's show discussing some literature. And um, Erin actually sent this one over to me, and I was extremely excited just to get my hands on it and read a little bit more about what the author thought was important to social justice. So without further ado... Before we get started in that, I guess, Aaron, do you want to introduce the article for us? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so actually, in one of the classes I'm taking, we're talking, it's all about radical behaviorism. And so the author, Jay Moore, uh, our textbook is by him. And so I was starting to do a little of some Google searches, uh, Google Scholar searches on social justice and language. And this article popped up written by the same author. And so, um, you know, it talks a lot about uh, mentalism, which we're going to define, and then uh, radical behaviorism, which we can also define as well. But then also how that um, shows up in some of these uh, errors or effects that we have that, that we see in our, in our behavior and how that can impact um, how, we, how we act and how we treat people. So um, a really cool article. Okay. So how you been, Erin? What's going on? Oh goodness. Um, not much. Try, I think, uh, trying to make it through the week. Um, got a conference coming up next week. So it's a uh, planning, planning for that Florida association of behavior analysis conference. So, um, if anybody's going to be down there, uh, find me, I guess. Are you, are you going to that one? I don't think you're going to that one. I am not going to that one, but the show will come out while you're there. So if there oh. are any people that are listening, go ahead and find Aaron. Yeah, definitely. It, it yeah, the conference starts. So the workshops this this episode will come out Tuesday, right? And then the workshops will start Wednesday, and then the actual conference is Thursday. So um, I'm actually presenting with uh, Kristen Lancaster on Thursday. We're going to be presenting on gender diversity, affirmation, and inclusion. inclusion. I think that's at 1.30 in the afternoon. So come find us. Um, and then also doing an Ignite presentation. Do you know what Ignite is? Have you ever heard of that? No, so, so it's also called a lightning talk. There are different like synonyms and names that people use for this. But it's a five-minute fast, typically fast-paced. You don't have to do it fast-paced. But it, you you set this PowerPoint pre-recorded. Each slide is 20 seconds long. And you have it timed, so it keeps going. You're supposed to memorize what you're going to say, and you're supposed to inspire people just really fast-paced. Typically, they're really funny. Uh, people get really, really creative with it. So we're going to uh, – Chris and I, again, are doing one on the values of being honest, humble, and human cool. and um, and how all of us within this field have uh, experienced challenges 
and done things and we're all connected whether we want to say that we are or not. So, um, so yeah, I've just been prepping for that all week. Uh, really excited, really, really amped about that. So how about you? How have you been this week? I have been really good this week. Um, I made it a priority to kind of just sit down and figure out what I needed for myself um, and what some of the needs that I have that are being unmet. And I made a plan for how to meet some of those and I've been trying to shape some behavior. But um, my my goals for this week, I've been doing really well in, in that they were very small, but cook dinner for myself, <laughs> engage in a 30 minute exercise routine. There you so, go. Yes, I've been um, I've been doing well with that and, and I'm feeling good this week, thankfully. So sometimes it's those little things that that uh, that changes the most. Um, there's a book called The Power of Small. I don't know if you've heard of that. I have but heard it's, of that. Yeah. Uh, I want to read that. It's on my list, but it's all about little little things, five minutes, uh, little behaviors, committed actions that you can do. You know, so, yeah. but that's cool. Making yourself dinner is mm-hmm. hard, harder than you think when you're really busy. So, yes, it's <laughs> been really hard. <laughs> it's all good. All good. All right. Um, oh, and before we get any further, I want to uh, mention we have a Patreon account. Uh, so this is where if you like the show, if you um, want to continue to see more of this, because, uh, you know, this it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort um, to put all of this out and to be able to support some of the, the things that we want to be able to do in the future. Uh, we have opened a Patreon uh, account so you all can go there are different tiers with those different tiers come different benefits so go on check those out we're going to put the link in the show notes so you can check that out too feel free to email us if you have any questions or uh, want to chat about things too so um yeah is that all for like business up front that's all our before housekeeping. we get into <laughs> housekeeping housekeeping excellent word cool um All right, so let's dive into this article. So the article is called Behavior Analysis, Mentalism, and the Path to Social Justice. So I think because we're most people in the field of behavior analysis know what the term mentalism means, but probably maybe not everybody knows exactly what that means. So maybe maybe we should define that a little bit for all of the listeners, behavior analysis and beyond. Yeah, Um, so mentalism as we know it, um, just really refers to attributing causes of behavior um, to some internal or inner state of being. Um, A lot of times there might be an explanation given that is referring to something that's not physical. Um, And so a lot of terms that you could hear just like subjective, conceptual, hypothetical, things like that. Yep, exactly. And and it's uh, typically what mainstream psychology uh, kind of attributes our behavior to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, w- when we explain things and we think about the English language, we think about how subjective it is at times. Uh, and we think about subjective versus objective. So objective being able to clearly define it so we know exactly what it's talking about. Subjective can mean different things to different people, right? So if I say um, that 
I'm happy or that you're happy, what looks happy to me or what feels happy to me could be different than you or anybody else. Right. Um, And then when we start to apply these kind of mentalistic or subjective terms uh, and ideas as for people's behavior, that's when we get uh, like definitions or we get explanations. Um, What did we come up with? Um, They act like that because they're liberal, Mm -hmm. right? What does liberal actually mean? Mm -hmm. It could mean different things for different people. Right. Um, Or he blows up. What did you write? He blows up like that because he's bipolar, Mm -hmm. right? That's an internal state that we have. And we're using it as a way to explain the behavior that we're saying, but essentially we're just working ourselves into a circle of non-explanation because (laughs) we still have not um, thoroughly explained what's, what's happening. Um, Right. And, and a lot of times with mentalism, we just end the sentence there. So, you know, Aaron's happy because they are a happy person. Exactly. (laughs) Period. No more is necessary to say. So, mm mm-hmm. Exactly. And right. And we'll talk about circular reasoning in a second, but there's a lot of limitations to using mentalistic language or, or defining things in mentalistic terms. First of all, it's hard to define, like we talked about, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's subjective language, different things, different people. Um, it's hard to measure if it's different to you and it's different to me. How are we going to measure that? How are we going to come up on a general consensus? Um, you know, how do you measure happiness? How do you measure fear? How do you, me- you know, um, I don't know. Have Happiness you ever seen? comes from within, Aaron. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, you know, or, or even we think about the things that go on in our head, the thoughts that we're having, um, you know, or oh, the reactions that we may, it's not just feelings, but um, any sort of internal state that, that is going on. Um, but oftentimes these things are really vague and they're incomplete statements. Like you were saying it, you kind of end up circling back around to where you started. And, mm-hmm. um, and that leads to like these misrepresentations of what's actually happening. There's no, uh, there's no attention paid to what is going on in the environment, what's mm-hmm. happening within that context. Um, it's all based on that person's behavior is related to them. So they're, uh, you know, he robbed the liquor store because he's a delinquent, you yeah. know, um, and potentially give another example to kind of counteract that in a second. But, um, you know, we talk a lot in behavior analysis about B.F. Skinner uh, being one of the key figureheads. I just had his book. There it is. Uh, in the book... I think it's about behaviorism, 1974. Uh, He said that we must remember that mentalistic explanations explain nothing. And so that's, I love that. It's a basic way to say that. It's just blunt to to the point. There's no frills. Um, You know, you you don't explain anything by saying that. Mm -hmm. I think um, with mentalism, I think that it allows people allows us to escape um actually doing something about these things so like if i say that such and such engages in that behavior because they're bipolar then there's nothing else that we need to do here because that is the internal explanation and 
there is no other explanation for it and or there's nothing that we could do to um you know help that since that's the internal explanation for it so um i'm thinking about that from like an oppression standpoint too and when we say you know certain things are um exist because so i'm thinking of like sometimes we say like you know the system works like that because that's the system <laughs> and like, like um, yeah. okay so if that's the system we just we just end up doing nothing and, and acknowledging right. that that's just how it goes or that's just how it's supposed to work right uh, but like you said we've we've really explained nothing we and it's it's I won't say that it's lazy it's just what we're accustomed to doing uh, as a society as a as a larger culture we're accustomed to taking that viewpoint definitely um yeah this book and i can link to the book too it's uh, called conceptual foundations of radical behaviorism in the very beginning it gives a nice detailed account uh i don't know how far back it goes i think like the 1800s um or maybe maybe even beyond before that um but how psychology started um, and the philosophers and, and how they kind of conceptualized what, our behavior. And they started thinking about that. And um, that was the first thing that came was like, all right, we've got to figure out what's going on inside the mind. You know, this spiritual kind of uh, existence that we have, because it's there, it's present. We can't deny that we have feelings, that we feel certain ways, that there's uh, thoughts that are in our head. Um, but mm -hmm. we tend to separate that and uh, into two kind of lanes as the mind and then the body, which then is behavior. Right. So, so yeah. Um, but we keep talking how we keep coming in, in circles. And so there's a term for that. It's called circular reasoning. Um, and that's what ends up happening is where you are, um, it, you're, you're just circulating with the behavior to the cause, but then that mm -hmm. leads you right back around to the beginning. Right. So, um, so you were saying that um, people of color are violent because they're just violent, right? That mm -hmm. so then you're right back around to the beginning. So why are they violent? Well, because they're violent. They're just violent, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, or non-whites are less intelligent because they lack intelligence, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, and like you already said, the system. You know, it, it, that's just the way the system's set up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't lead us anywhere. It doesn't give us anything to change that. I think that was really kind of poignant what you said, as far as what do you do with that? Where do you go? How do you create change? <laughs> if you have nowhere to go, if you're stuck in a, a vicious cycle of that explanation, you don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, okay. So in contrast, what is behaviorism? Well, we say that <laughs> um, behavior. behavior, anything that an organism or a living organism does, right? And so things that we um, can observe and measure. Um, yeah, we. I mean, there have been a, a lot of different ways that we could talk about behaviorism, but we all come back down to the same thing, observable, measurable. Yeah, the way that, that it was always explained to me was that, um, you know, we look at behavior 
in a way that I can define it so specifically that if I was then to hand over this definition of, um, let's say violence, like we work on, uh, we work on defining things in behavioral terms that, you know, may not be present already. Denise, mm-hmm. you've done a lot of work with that. Uh, so if you talk about privilege and you define it in behavioral terms, because uh, it, it's possible for us to do that, I should be able to take that definition of privilege, look at look at a situation or a scenario and say, okay, is that behavior present? Is mm-hmm. is that, am I seeing privilege right here? Um, you know, and we can break that down with, with anything, um, you know, these very discrete behaviors or kind of larger, more conceptual behaviors like you're, you're kind of talking about. So, um, but I think it's really important to note that just because we focus on overt behavior, outward behavior, observable behavior, that doesn't mean that we don't negate the fact that there are feelings and there are emotions and that we have thoughts. Like all we of those are still private events. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> private events. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, if you hear the term radical behaviorism, and that's where that comes from is the, the radical in the sense of not like this crazy outrageous idea, but radical in the sense of it's all encompassing. It's thorough. We don't leave out certain parts of us. Um, we take those into consideration. They might not be the cause of our behavior, but they can, um, they can impact that behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think this is the big distinction between mentalism and then behaviorism is that we are really focusing on the environment. And so that's going to, this, this distinction is going to be really important when we start talking a little bit throughout the show uh, in, about what this article talks about um, is that we are focused on the environment and the environment uh, causes of behavior being in that environment. So, so, so if I go to work, right. And I get a paycheck, I'm probably going to keep coming back to work Mm -hmm. to get that paycheck, right? That environment has now reinforced my behavior of coming to work. Now there's a lot of other variables that go into that, but on a basic level, um, I need money. I go to work, then I get money, right? Yeah. Our behavior is, is selected by the consequences that follow. And so that's a great example. Um, and I mean, there are, uh, many different ways that you can think about your own behavior in terms of the consequences. So, um, you know, if physical touch is important to you, you, you to see a person that you care about, you hold their hand, that consequence is mediated by the, the touch. And that, that's something that um, you um, wanted or, or motivated by. Mental. there you go it's hard to leave out the see that's the thing is that that mentalistic language is so ingrained in into our vernacular that it's 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 really hard to separate you know and i I don't even know if if it's impossible it's possible to separate it but okay good go what were you what do you say but who does <laughs> right I'm, exactly i'm thinking about like who does who works in this field works with um clients and actually does you know 100 accuracy um if they were to track themselves of not using any type of uh mentalism or any type of yeah any type of mentalism to describe something like i think that's how we 
use everyday or layperson language. Mm-hmm. And if we are not able to do that, then I think about like, how will our language function to the listener? And will we be actually able to, will we be able to do what we set out to do if we're not using some type of language that is familiar to them? And that language that is familiar to them might be mentalistic. So if I use the word, um, he wanted to do such and such instead of saying that there was, you know, an MO present and it was mm-hmm. an uh, evocative uh, right. component or whatever, then, you know, the other person might not understand that. And exactly. um, yeah, you risk, so. you risk like lack of connection with people. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that when we, when we did our introductory episode for this podcast, that was one thing we talked about was, being able to connect people with other fields. And I think in order for us to do that, there's some degree of, of that language that we're going to have to use. So I don't know. It's not all bad. I imagine how awkward we would sound if we only used behavior analytic language all day long, nobody would want to talk to us. So, um, but yeah, so where were we? Oh, we were talking about behavior. Okay. So, um, we talked about behavior being selected by the consequences in our environment. And so essentially that's why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And we were giving examples of that. So um, can you think of any like, so think of, think of an example like related to privilege. Like why would someone, can you think of one off the top of your head? No, I'm listening and I'm like, Getting prepared. <laughs> Getting prepared. So I think I think what's important is like I can give like these really easy kind of layperson examples uh, of everyday life, but because these are new skills like privilege and oppression, or can maybe some new language or concepts to people, uh, those behaviors that are exist within those concepts may not be so. We may not be as aware of those. Um, so two of the kind of effects or errors that we make in our behavior are really going to help, I think, bring some of that awareness of how we behave uh, Mm -hmm. based on thoughts, based on our language that is present. So um, do we just want to go ahead and jump into that? Or did you have anything else to add? Um, Like behavior? Yeah. So we've been talking about why people do what they do. Um, And that's what we do as behavior analysts. Like we think of the function. What is the function of this behavior? Meaning why? Why are they doing this? What's maintaining it? What are they getting out of it? But I think that's something that um, a lot of humans do that are even outside of our field. Like people probably spend a lot of their time just wondering in general, like, why are they doing that? Or like, why am I doing that? And so that, you know, I think that's a commonality that we have as people to to wonder and to have those questions. And um, that kind of like gets us to this next place that we're going, but there's a difference in how the majority of people, according to what we're about to talk about, um, the majority of people actually view explanations of behavior. And so um, fundamental attribution error, which was studied by social social psychologists, um, essentially said that people use internal explanations to explain other people's behavior. So that's going back to like what we were talking about uh, with mentalism. So you do this because you are this way. Um, 
And I catch myself doing that so much, like Mm -hmm. where I have to take a step back and say, okay, like maybe there was something else going on here. Um, And I'm like thinking like one time I was like at a drive-thru, like last week at some point I was at a drive-thru and I'm in Maryland. So sometimes you like go and you could go to like a Target or a drive-thru. And sometimes the person that is there like doesn't say anything to you. And so like my initial response, because I've been like culturally shaped in that way, to expect people to speak to me and thinking about privilege too. Like I expect Mm -hmm. someone to speak to me. Um, So I'm like, I'm I'm upset. Like this person is like ridiculous in my head. And then like, I have to take a step back and be like, this could have nothing to do with (laughs) who they are. Like it could be a bad day. Maybe they aren't, are not able to speak. Maybe they are sick and they cannot speak today or whatever it is. But, um, a lot. So essentially what fundamental attribution error says is that we relate someone to like who they are. So this person is a butthole just, you know, Mm -hmm. because of X, Y, and Z. Um, And so that, that says something about them and not the other things that are going on outside of them, which could be like, oh, maybe they are, you know, have a sore throat and cannot speak, or um, maybe they're just having a bad day. Something happened with their supervisor, whatever. And so not really taking into account the external factors or the environment. So I was uh, I was on the phone with somebody the other day and they were at a grocery store and I could hear the cashier in the background and the cashier uh, was rambling on about movies. Um, I think it was about Harry Potter, which I can get down with. Don't get me wrong. I'll talk about Harry Potter all day. But it was just there. I don't even think they took a breath about um, a very wide range of things. Okay. And side note, I think it's important because I love how you just called yourself out. Like, hey, I make these errors too. Like, yes, we are here doing this podcast. We are humans. And so mm-hmm. I love that that is a value of ours is to, to point out these things when it happens in ourselves. So here's mine. Um, <laughs> but the cashier just kept going on and on and on. And, um, and I, <laughs> the person I was on the phone was so sweet and so kind. Uh, and I was like... Once she got out of the store, um, I was like, wow, that person likes to talk about themselves a lot, right? Wow, they're self-centered, something like mm-hmm. that. And she goes, yeah, Publix likes to uh, hire a lot of people that have, um, you know, disabilities. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, wow, this this person could you know, that could be the environmental factor that I did not take into consideration. And I mm-hmm. apply that to this mentalistic construct of, wow, they're being selfish. They only like to talk about themselves. They don't have an interest in anybody else. No, like we know that about people on the, that have autism, you know, is that they, they have trouble with perspective taking and um, and reciprocal conversations and, and, and social skills deficits. And having worked with those individuals for, what, better part of a decade? Um, that didn't even come into my mind. So I was like, like, I I felt awful. I felt guilty. I was like, all right, like this. And then when I read this article, I was like, holy crap. Like I, I do this every day, every Mm -hmm. day. So, but yes. um, And, and the other part of the fundamental attribution error too, is that when we behave, we typically apply causes or reasons 
for our behavior to environmental factors. So if I go into um, work one day or something like that, and I don't greet my coworker, um, I'm thinking, wow, I just had a really rough morning. You know, mm -hmm. like the, my coffee spilled and some, you know, got pulled over on the way to the office or, you know, I can list all of these things that came up within a given context that could have then resulted in this, um, you know, behavior where my coworker who just experienced that was like, wow, they're really jerk. They're a big jerk today mm -hmm. and give me a mentalistic cause to my behavior. So, um, and I think the thing to point out is because we're just talking about behavior analysis and how much of a challenge it is for um, us to speak to other people about behavior and the causes of behavior. We take the perspective that that environment is causing the behavior and that goes against the cultural norms that everybody is accustomed to. And so we're kind of like always climbing up this hill and we have trouble connecting with people because it does go against cultural norms. So, yeah. I think about what are those things, horoscopes that you read mm -hmm. in like the newspaper and my friends in college used to be all about that going through learning about behavior analysis and um, something about you're going to have a, a bad day or something like that. And, um, and their day starts off and they wake up late and they're like, Oh, I knew this was going to happen. My horoscope said that it was going to be a bad day. And I was like, but you didn't set your alarm clock. <laughs> You know, <laughs> there's your simplified answer as to why you woke up late. Not that some stars aligned in some mystical space and then somebody wrote about it in a newspaper, you know, and, and you get so convoluted. And um, but I think it's it's hard. It's like, how do you I mean, I don't want to get down like a too far of a rabbit hole. How do you connect with people when we have a very simple explanation that doesn't hit you on this emotional level like mm -hmm. this over here does? Right. So there's a challenge. <sighs> It, it, it is a challenge. And I think it's one that we as analysts, like we should take, um, we really need to take that into consideration. Like I myself, I'm spiritual too. So there are things that, you know, I think of that probably <laughs> are mm -hmm. not the same way that we would describe it um, behaviorally. But part of me also being spiritual and be being a behavior analyst is sometimes I'm like, okay, we're going a little bit too far here in my head in terms of like the spirituality piece of thing. Um, and I'm, and I, I can't think of an example. I was having a conversation with a friend like last week and detailing to him how I thought that, you know, we were taking things a little bit too far. And it was very similar to, you know, how sometimes we take things a little bit too far in religion as well. Um, and, and, and there's really no explanation. Well, when it can better be explained by the environment that's, you know, that's essentially the point is like, there are some other things that are actually impacting this. Um, so, right. right. So we talked about how we go against the cultural norms, so to speak about environment causing being the cause of behavior and selecting our behaviors. Um, you know, so think about culture. What are some cultural differences that we think about? Like we've got different type. We got, Western culture, Western culture and Eastern culture. And then there's, um, we think about in terms of individualistic versus collective collectivist cultures. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So, so for those who don't know, I don't know if I said it on the show that my background is counseling psychology. So, mm -hmm. you know, some of the stuff I learned in undergrad and grad school at some point, but um, with this fundamental attribution 
era theory. Um, essentially, there's a cultural difference. So like if there is an individual, if a person um, is part of a culture that is generally individualistic, they might fall deeper into, you know, this attribution error um, versus like collectivistic. And there's, so it's been studied in terms of like success and failure. So like if you are from an individualistic culture, um, when you succeed, you believe that that is an internal factor because I am strong, I am smart and all these things um, versus when you fail, now then that is an external factor. And, you know, that it's everyone else's fault that I failed. Conversely, on the other side of that, if you come from a collectivistic culture, when you succeed, that is everyone else. It's an environmental thing. And so, um, and then when you fail, that is internal. So you see the different of, um, I guess, relating to success and failure, uh, depending on your culture. So I, I think that is one, uh, I think I thought that was kind of cool about, you know, the literature of social psychology, finding that difference. Yeah, that is, you know, I never thought about that, but it is true mm-hmm. about how, especially like in this culture, we, uh, you know, if, if I succeed, it's because I worked my butt off, right? I don't yeah. think about, I mean, I do, but that's not what is highlighted. I don't think about the opportunities that were afforded to me, all the support that I got along the way, all the money that my parents may have shelled out for college or, you know, all of that. Um, so it's, it is, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out those, those differences because I think they're really important to note. Yeah. I also want to, um, mention another article with that. Um, so there was an article done that wanted to discuss the language of social justice or so essentially privilege and oppression and find out what these concepts really mean to people. And so they actually studied, I think their sample size was about 65. They they um, had 65 people to kind of discuss what oppression and privilege meant. And it was, they had some very interesting findings, but going back to this like fundamental attribution uh, error or theory, a lot of the respondents actually saw the oppressed groups as having, they were oppressed because of an internal factor. Like they, they, you know, were oppressed because they couldn't advocate for themselves or, you know, lacked advocacy skills. Um, On the other side of that, people who were privileged, they also saw that as internal as well. And that they had, you know, some type of extra like, um, willpower to to receive privilege. And so I thought that was a very interesting take um, and seeing how sometimes we we victimize people even further by saying that the reason why you're poor is because you're poor uh, or, the, you know, or um, saying that it's an internal state. So like you're poor because you just are lazy or you don't try. Um, you're poor because you... Um, you don't think far enough into the future or you don't have advanced skills, not even advanced, that's external, but like you, you don't have um, the desire to have more. And so, um, yeah, 
let me, did I say the author's name? Because I want to make sure I say it. But if I don't, it's going to be in the show notes. But the author was Estella and Alexander. And it's a really interesting read because you also see there were parts where they just had them describe it in general. So they they wanted to do like actual, a description of privilege and oppression and then like what causes it. So the first part, everyone that was describing privilege, they said essentially it was all about capital. It was all about capital. So privilege meant that you were rich. So we're only talking about privilege being the 1% at that point. Um, so then we can talk about that in more detail another time, but think about all the people who actually still hold privilege. And because the definition of privilege to a lot of people is that you have a money you don't even recognize the privilege that you have yourself because that's not you, that you also might be, you know, part of a middle class or um, lower income family. And so very, look that one up, people. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't read that one yet. I definitely want to. Um, and then there was, uh, you know, we can also talk about uh, the example that was given because it's kind of connected with that as far as, uh, intelligence and the mm-hmm. use of uh, intelligence and the, the perspective that, um, you know, only certain people were intelligent. How, how did, um, as far as like race goes and so back in the 1920s, mm-hmm. I think is when all this, when like eugenics was really big. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking that, you know, we could breed superior genes into people to make like the superior race. Um, and there was actually, I want to say upwards of like around that time, like 30 states or something that legalized sterilization of humans so they couldn't reproduce. Um, I would need to find a citation for that. Um, I know where it is so I can find it. But this idea that, um, different races have more superior genes and intelligence back in that time was, was part of that. So they would do, you know, they would screen people coming in to the United States as, and they use that as a screening tool, whether or not they could, they could get in or like um, reproducing with other races would produce like uh, less superior humans. Um, I, I think about that a lot just because, one word science, but just thinking about academics and like the things that have been studied over the years and how bias and prejudice and racism has infiltrated the the studies that we've seen. And, you know, there were people that were part of these larger organizations, like, you know, how they viewed black people and black men or in less being less intelligent or um, less useful to, or, and allowing them to then dictate the academic space and like what they said about black people, like being less, you know, less intelligent and like attributing that to just being part of, you know, who they are. So black people are less intelligent because they're just less intelligent. I think um, some, a part of that uh, study that we were reading talked about like their neurons were defective. So it was like, Oh, if their neurons are defective, then, you know, nothing else we can do here, mm-hmm. um, but accept that for what it is. And then I think about like, you know, how we utilize testing um, in the school system and yeah, I don't, I don't, 
That's it's just a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's all yeah. part like, and I, I really did appreciate this uh, article because it really gives you some insight onto like the systemic part of it. And so like how these things come into the, the larger system and we relate these like internal factors. And then we are, then we allow the, we allow like rules to be set to kind of um, treat people any other way because of how we are in inter- like seeing them internally, which might be lesser than, or, you know, um, neurons being defective or less intelligent or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the system and that was actually an example that you gave is the system's defective because, you know, that's the way it is, or because it's just that, you know, it works better this way or something like that, whatever it is. Um, but you think about the systems were designed like if you think about intelligence and you're playing, putting that into this, you know, it's designed with, with those beliefs in place. And then those beliefs are then reinforced in other generations. Right. And, and that continues to be passed down, passed down, even if it's not necessarily uh, explicitly taught, um, you know, those perspectives, those behaviors that we don't even realize that we're engaging in often, like I, mm-hmm. I did with, you know, um, and, I would imagine like if, if I would have been in that store, um, the example that I gave earlier with the cashier that was talking, I wonder if like my kids would have been with me or something and they had watched my body language, if they had experienced that and I was that model for them, um, I might not have said out loud. I know I would not have said out loud any sort of like negative comment, but potentially my lack of engagement with that person. Um, or lack of any sort of positive comment would have been an indicator that that wasn't okay to them. And so instead of taking that, I think about how these things go down, you know, generation by generation and these errors continue to happen. It's because sometimes we're not even aware of what we're actually doing, you know, but this, I mean, this is a perfect segue into the, to the, the other thing that we we wanted to talk about, which was the, uh, the Pygmalion effect. Which I just, I, I'd heard about this, uh, obviously learning about it in sociology classes and, you know, psychology classes and things. But um, so essentially this is saying that our expectations that we have influence our behavior. So back in 1986, Rosenthal and Jacobson conducted this study where um, it was at elementary school kids, I believe, they gave them the intelligence tests. And so they all had these scores. They told the teachers, they randomly selected 20% of these students and they told the teachers that these 20%, the 20% of kids they randomly selected were um, these bloomers or had this great potential for success. And so eight months later, they were retested. All the students were retested. Um, and these kids that did not have any sort of significant difference from their peers before now were testing significantly higher um, and should significantly greater gains on the same test in comparison to the control group or their other peers. Uh, and so the way that, that the researchers accounted for this change was the behavior of the teachers. That was the only thing based on all of the controls that they put into place um, was that that was the case. And we have found similar effects to be uh, seen as like when when 
kids are paid more attention to when they have more positive interactions and they receive more praise for things, they tend to do better. What's your, what's your experience with that? Have you, I mean, experienced anything? Um, well, yeah, I think, I mean, just on a day-to-day basis, like it's setting an expectation and then changing my behavior towards it. Um, I think also in definitely just going back to you talking about the, the school environment, I've definitely met with teachers who have like this certain expectation for, um, a child and then their behavior start to shift. Actually, um, so there's someone that I was listening to speak last week or two weeks ago that spoke about that in a way. So you have a child, you're new to a case, and they say, watch out, that child bites. And so now the expectation is this child is going to bite bite me or someone else. So now my behavior has changed. I might, you know, do some type of antecedent manipulation where I might wear a sweater so I can protect myself a little better. I might start moving, like if the child gets a little bit close to me, but your behavior has changed based on the expectations that have been set. Um, So I think that is a a good um, example of how that comes into play. Being a former foster parent, I would get these things all of the time. Um, you'd get these awful reports coming. Uh, one actually from, from I'll, I'll get slightly personal here, um, but like one for my, my son, who is like the sweetest, most kind-hearted, gentlest human being on this planet um, and came to us, uh, you know, with this diagnosis of, oppositional defiance disorder, mm-hmm. um, was on mood stabilizers, was on, was, uh, like, you know, just really awful stories about things that had happened. Um, and oftentimes these are reports that are not reliable that are coming from, um, people in the community or whatever that may be. But, um, definitely like when he came into our home for the first time, very cautious, like, you know, kind of like, making sure walking on eggs, just, just to make sure he's comfortable. But then it was in within like 12 hours. I was like, this, this is not the same kid that I, that you just told me that was about ready to walk into our house. And to this day, like, I, I don't, I've never seen him be aggressive. He's just, he's so, so sweet, but it's, it's that exact same, same thing as that expectation. It changed my behavior, you know? So, but it's, I try to be gentle with myself. That's very mentalistic too. But I try to to, to have some self compassion uh, and not, um, you know, not put. Uh, try to have like these aversive thoughts when it comes to that. Or if I do understand that, that's generally human nature, and just being aware of that will help change my behavior mm. in the future. Yeah, and I I would say I've definitely experienced that in the school setting too. I was a public school teacher for for a couple years um and seeing it was in a very affluent county and uh and but they had a wide range of students there as far as like socioeconomic status goes and just going in with kids like pushing into the classroom to work with with some of my students in there i could see just 
even like physical space representation of some mm -hmm. of the students where I knew their stories versus some of the other students. So there's a lot of variables that go into that, but the teachers specifically were paying more attention to the kids. And that could be because they were getting more reinforcement back from them. You know, the, the, the other kid, you know, may have had some more challenging behaviors that were different. So there's a lot that goes into that. But I think from the studies that, that we were talking about here um, is seeing that that our expectations, it does, it impacts our behavior. It changes who we pay attention to. Um, you know, if I have an expectation, like a, a white person is um, nonviolent versus a person of color that is violent, right? And I need directions or something like that. That expectation that's in my head is going to change who I'm going to go to at that point to ask for directions. Is that a good mm -hmm. example? Mm -hmm. That's a good example. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, and we are talking about education too. I'm thinking about how resources are sifted and like who gets the money. And I, like, I know that it's based on like zip code, but then, um, but like not recognizing, but let's say, you know, affluent individuals um, or rich people, they value education. So I am going to make sure that there are, there's money funneled into this community. Um, versus like people of color who might not take their education or, or might be underperforming in their schools. And so I'm going to lower my expectations or I might reduce the funding because it's not needed here. Um, yes. Yes. I was listening to somebody speak earlier about that. And, and, and I think about like how some of this information that we learned, um, my head is like going in the RFT direction, thinking about like some of the frames that we have. Um, but some of this information that we've learned, we then attributed to like the oppressed group. So I was listening to this person speak and they were saying how, um, how people of color, they don't take their education seriously enough. And then they complain that the government is not doing enough for them. And it's like, so now that there's this internal thing, um, they don't want it um, good enough or they're not motivated um, and not recognizing that there actually were external factors to prevent them from actually having, you know, equal opportunity to education and things like that. So, um, but then if that's part of our expectation, how do we act towards like people of color or, you know, people in inner city environments, um, in their schools, like, you know, I'm, I'm in Baltimore and to here in 2019, there are still schools that don't have air conditioning. It's really beyond me. And then when they, you know, when they, when the school gets too hot, they have to send them home. And so somebody misses a day of education and it's like, oh, you know, you all don't value your education anyway. So, and that's like, obviously I'm filling in some of those things, but we don't have access to all this information. A lot of time we don't have, sometimes right. you don't have access to people's expectations, but, um, yeah, I'm just uh, was considering that as you were speaking about um, the violent part of that. That's that's a lot to to think about, actually. Um, I remember when I learned about testing, like the required testing that is now um, every so many years that you have to take uh, in Virginia. It's the SOLs. 
think in West Virginia, it's the West test, something like that. All these states have your required testing you have to take. And depending on your school's performance, there's certain criteria. But I remember hearing that they would start to lose funding if you didn't perform at a certain scores if you didn't have scores at a certain level and i was like what shouldn't that be the opposite mm-hmm. obviously they're failing what why are they failing something something's wrong and if money requires resources or additional training or something like that like what i wouldn't think that the answer would be removing resources that's just mm-hmm. that, you know so it's um that's kind of what showed up for me when when you said that too yeah and <laughs> a quote showed up for me as you were saying that um, Skinner said, like, as intelligent people, we refuse to ask what is wrong. And yeah, like, what is actually like inhibiting this school or the people in the school from performing at this test level? Like, what's what's wrong with the test and things like that? What are the factors that are actually contributing to the lower scores? And then just like you said, the response, like we're going to reduce funding. Um, and yeah, this isn't, a, this isn't a very in-depth analysis, of course, of like educational woes, but definitely something to think about if, if we're not even considering it already and the differences of, you know, what we know about standardized testing and how it's still being used. And we know that there's, there are cultural differences between uh, standardized testing. And, and so, yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. I don't know a lot about that. Um, It's something that I need to read more on, but I do know that those tests are not geared um, towards uh, you know, an inclusive population, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I'm glad that you brought that up too. Um, we'll have to, we'll have to talk about that more. But one thing that, that I also think about is why we do this sometimes. And, and so if we think about social identity theory, just briefly, we won't get too, too far into this. Um, we know based on past research that if we split people into groups, and if you think about our identities, we are in groups already, but we tend to show preference for those groups just simply because we're a part of that. And so, you know, that we think about applying uh, resources or, um, you know, giving access to people that are similar to us. So it's, um, I mean, I can link to, uh, an article about that too, but I think that that some of that stuff starts starts to show up that we might not necessarily be aware of. Um, you know, when it comes to some of those larger systems uh, that that we're talking about. I agree. Well, yeah. this was a good. I think I liked um, hearing about Jay Moore's um, theory of mentalism or. A viewpoint on mentalism and social justice. And one thing that brought the article home for me is that he made the case that if we allow mentalism, such as the ones that reveal themselves in structural oppression, to continue, then we will interfere with bringing all members of society into contact with effective methods of interventions. And I, I appreciated that. In some, in some respect. So let's take us out, Aaron. Yeah. Can we give 
the listeners some homework? Like, how can they use the information that we went over today? So we're all, and I'm going to do this too. We should put this stuff on social media uh, as far as what we're going to suggest. So one thing we talked about is recognizing and and to developing some self-awareness to when these things show up. So I think specifically in regard to the fundamental attribution error, so where if something comes up in our daily life and we ourselves apply a mentalistic reason as to why that person is engaging in that behavior, becoming aware of that, maybe take some data on that. Like, you know, we take uh, frequency data. So just tally, like how many times a day that happens? How many times a day did uh, some somebody engage in some like aggressive driving and you gave some, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> cause to their behavior that's you know, they're a jerk or something like that. Even name calling. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's you are attributing their behavior to their internal character. So that was me today. I was actually going to use that as an example, but I gave the other one because I wanted to talk about my privilege in it, but I definitely did that today. I always like someone driving. I have this problem very often. (laughs) Uh, You're you're in Baltimore. I'm, I think where I live, it's a little bit more laid back, but, um, I think if everybody could take some data on that, I would love to see that. I'm going to take some data. Do you want to do it like across three days? Um, yeah. How many? Yeah, three yeah. days? Yeah, let's okay. do three days. That's. I think that's enough. Okay. I, and I would say, well, and it's hard too because it's you might need a day or two just to start recognizing some of these things because mm-hmm. your data is going to look a little skewed if you only recognize two but you're not fluent in being like, oh, this is when this shows up and paying attention to, to when... Um, it, you know, you're more likely to en- engage in some of those behaviors. So, um, so yeah, so I think that would be awesome. That would be awesome. So next, uh, and then maybe like the next show, if we like run it in order, we can check in with each other and see where we were. Cool. All right. Well, that concludes our show. Yeah. Awesome. This was fun. So, uh, once again thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us tune in for the next show It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm